Hi, Joel and Suzanne. Hi, my name is Art Wimberly. Hi, my name is Lauren. Hey, Suzanne, my name is Brad. Hi, Suzanne, my name is Chelsea. Hi, my name is Mark. Hi, my name is Sarah. Hi, my name is Nicole. Hi, my name is Rachel. And hello, my name is Joel. You are listening to episode 95 of the Enneagram Journey podcast with the Enneagram godmother, Suzanne Stabile. As you can tell from the introduction, it's a Q&A episode. We're going to talk about eights and energy, anxiety disorders and sixes, sevens and eights in relationship, parenting a seven child, so much more, including nines and change, which leads to our next episode of Others on the Journey. Nines, we want to hear from you. How do you feel about change? What does it mean to you? Do you embrace it? Do you not like it? What are some healthy ways that you deal with it? And maybe what are some of the, the less healthy ways? Visit theanagramjourney.org backslash interact and you'll see the spot where you can leave a voicemail. We want to hear from you. You can also find that link in the show notes. So we're going to bring up some productive doing and nines are going to phone in and let us know their thoughts and feelings about change. Today's plug is for the new Advent video series coming out that Joe and Suzanne put together. It's phenomenal. Whether you are um, seasoned and know everything there is about Advent, it's a great video series to go through with a small group or by yourself. And if you were like me and really had no clue what Advent really was, then this will be a great opportunity to learn. You'll be able to find that beginning November 25th on the LTM website, lifeinthetrinityministry.com. And now let's send it on over to Suzanne Stabile. But she is sent to do erasers and she clean them in the basement. And there's a janitor down there who plays chess. The Queen's yeah. Gambit is the Queen's name of it. Yeah. We watched, we watched just the first one last night. It was really good. Cool. I was told to check that out also. Yeah, it was good. Any, uh, before we jump to questions, you got any pearls of wisdom or something on your mind that you want to share with the listeners? I think we're in a position to need a lot of patience. And it occurs to me that I haven't done a lot of teaching about the Enneagram and patience over the years. You know, I've kind of talked about being patient with yourself, but I haven't talked much about being patient with what's happening around you. And um, we did an interview with a gentleman for the cohort who talked about, he was a nine, he talked about himself sedated in the corner. And I immediately thought about the fact that I can't do that. And... I wonder if patience is easier for nines because he was saying he's trying to come out of that. Like he doesn't want to be that. Mm -hmm. But then I started thinking about dad and he's so patient. Or he's impatient internally and just not sharing it. But I think he's patient. And you're very patient with things and with your children and with me. And so that's a withdrawing stance patience and an aggressive stance patience. And it occurred to me that I think perhaps the numbers that are the least patient are ones, twos, and sixes. 
Interesting. And I wonder if it's because their orientation to time is what's happening right now. And if they're impatient with what's happening right now, that's all there is. And so it's just, uh, I need this to be over. I need to make something happen here. I need to fix this or tend to this or for ones make this right. That makes a lot of sense. The orientation of time being present moment, then being impatient with the, the, present, the moment. present moment. Yeah, right. So. You know, at first glance, you wouldn't say, you know, I think probably the numbers that are the most patient on the Enneagram are three, sevens, and eights, and people would go, what? But I think there's a chance for that. I think part of it could be tied to the repressed center. You know, when you, start, when you first started talking there, I thought to myself immediately, man, I can think of the times that I've been impatient with you with my children, with whatever. But it only takes so many times to realize and think about that that doesn't work. It doesn't work to be impatient with a two-year-old who is going to be a two-year-old. Or a 70-year-old so who's going to be a 70-year-old. Who's going to be a 70-year-old. <laughs> and so being impatient just isn't... Productive. Right. Yeah. I didn't, you know, that doesn't help. And that's very interesting because that's so logical. Right. Right. That's just, uh, it's like, okay, this isn't working. So I need a new plan. Especially for a two. Yeah. When the feelings are the first, then the logic isn't necessarily right there behind it. Yeah, You know, and I, I think for twos, I think we don't pay nearly enough attention to the fact that the feelings we're feeling are somebody else's. You know, one of the reasons I get all up in other people's business it's because I don't want to feel what I'm feeling when I'm feeling their feelings, right? It's like it feels like an invitation to be involved because I'm responding to their feelings and not my own. And it takes a lot of discipline for me to boundary what I know is somebody else's feeling enough to get to what I feel. And unfortunately, what I'm discovering is what I feel is impatient. <laughs> It's very, uh, it's a big surprise to me, I would say that. So that's one thing. I did an interview for a magazine, for the Enneagram magazine a while back, and it came yesterday, and I went back and read it. And um, I don't usually do that. But it's a beautiful magazine, and I just thought, I'm just going to read it. And um, I was aware that one of the things I said there was that I'm happy about what I do, or what we do, because we get to teach people something that, as it turns out, is extraordinarily helpful during a global pandemic. But who would have known that? Like, we were never preparing to teach for that, right? I, I believe that because of the work that we have put in the world, people are doing better quarantined at home with the people they love at being good to one another. You mentioned that we're doing some interviews and stuff for the cohort. Yeah. And two other things that people said, one person was a five talking about their husband working from home mm -hmm. and in her space. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> but, but she was able to put words to it instead of what, what instead could come being from irritated. that. Why don't you, you know, yeah. you hate my presence, you, whatever it could be. Yeah. blow into yeah and another one was 
some work around the anagram and stress and security <laughs> that she was doing right before a big crisis at her employment. And she said how, uh, I think she called it Providence, that yeah. she timing of that and how much she benefited from it. Yeah. So. What do you think it'd be like to be quarantined like you and Whitney and the four kids? What would it be like for the six of you if y'all didn't know anything about the Enneagram? Uh, divorce lawyers. I, it would be crazy. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Dad even said to me, he said, you know, uh, you're you're doing better at me being around and kind of leaving me alone to do my work than I thought you would. <laughs> I said, hey, I work here. This is my office, right? It's like, you know, I, I like to be with him so much. I think he thought, what's gonna, what's this going to be like? <laughs> One of the things that I want to point to also is the importance of finding whatever the other thing is or things outside of the Enneagram for people's personal health during this time period. Mm-hmm. You know, Whitney, uh, she was struggling with some things and... You know, she sees a therapist, she did anagram work, every, she is a therapist, she's got other tools. What she ended up turning to was exercise. Yep. And that just changed her, a, a different kind of exercise. She's been a runner for forever, but she is doing different exercises now that it's just completely changed mm-hmm. the color around her. It's really cool to see. Yeah, I said to dad, um, I don't know, maybe we're five days in or six. I said, you know, I, I, you don't have to do this with me, but I have to go back to a very strict morning routine of spiritual practices. Very strict. I can't. This is going on much longer than we thought it would, and I have a lot on my plate to do remotely, which isn't my sweet spot, and I'm not going to be able to do it without that. And I'm better. I'm already better. I think we're six days in. And I'm so thankful that I have things to choose from. And the Enneagram is certainly one, but it's just one. Like, you know, all, all the work that we've both done, you more than me, in recovery, all, all that helps me too. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's answer some questions. Okay, from I'm ready. you, the listeners. Hi, Suzanne. My name is Krista. And... I am a one on the Enneagram, and my husband is an eight, and we have four children. Our youngest is adopted. She is 11, and she's biracial, and I'm fairly certain she's a seven. Um, her emotional ups and downs since she was tiny and her um, negativity as of late may lead her to be more of a four, but I see so many seven qualities in her. Um, my question is, I really need help right now in parenting her because I find that while I can connect with her most times, when I'm trying to guide her as a preteen, a lot of the way I say it is offensive to her. And I need help constructing sentences so that I can be more motivational to her, more um, encouraging to her, instead of coming off critical. 
So I think that's what I'm looking for is just some guidance or insight into parenting a seven. Um, thank you. I love your podcast. Krista, thanks for the question. Um, I'll start and then Joel can help us, you and me. I'll, I'll try. <laughs> I would say that the one thing I didn't know to make space for was the alone time that sevens need. They are uh, quite gregarious when they're with us, but they need alone time. And I don't think I made space for that. We, uh, there were six of us, and in those days we lived in a parsonage. They were usually too small. And if I had it to do over with Joel at 11, I would see to it that he had more space. The other thing I would say is that Sevens have a gift in that their imaginations are almost limitless. And it's how they think, and they're in the thinking triad. So when they're young, and they're using their imaginations and learning to use it, and it's how they think, when we put the kibosh on uh, what they're dreaming or what they're thinking they might do for the summer or what they're going to do next year or uh, that's a that's a big mistake. It's a much better choice to ask questions about that so that you become part of their imagining rather than a roadblock to their imagining. And I think you can tailor questions that you don't know the answer to. They need to be honest questions around well, what would it be like for you to do that? What do you think you would get from it? And what would you like? And what would you not like? Instead of, oh, I don't, I, I don't think you want to do that when you grow up. Or I don't think you want to do that when you get in high school. People don't do that. I, I think all of that is the wrong path to take. Joel, you want to talk about what I got right? Dad what? and me. <laughs> I, when I look back on y'all parenting me uh-huh. <laughs> when I was younger. I think if her kid is a seven, uh-huh. then in that communication, you know, she's talking about how struggling to communicate with her. She feels offended. I think just bringing the facts, you know, especially with her being a one, have the bulk of the conversation you want to have with your child, with your eight husband first, uh-huh. then go have the final five minutes of that conversation with your kid Yeah, and just say, you know, the facts of it. I know that, uh, the longer people talk, mm-hmm. the more off of the subject they'll get. So if you're trying to talk to your child about this one thing mm-hmm. and you get long-winded and emotions get into it, mm-hmm. then I think that's when the child will get offended or take something personally or you'll come off as being critical of them when you have no intention of doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you clearly love your kid. and so, But as a child, you don't see that. You just hear what's happening. Man, I remember just being so one single track minded as a kid. So whatever it is that I wanted to do or whatever the subject matter was, that's what I was focused on. And so when all these other things start coming into it, whether it's chaining as a one and talking about other things that didn't go right in the past, Mm -hmm. 
or whatever else it is, instead of focusing on the issue at hand, that's when I would get hurt yep. personally. And I think the other thing is, and uh, Joey and Billy talk about this when they talk about parenting their seven. And I think this is big in a lot of different ways is consistency. Yep. And so, especially for, for the good stuff and the bad stuff, we were talking earlier, my daughter was wanting something and I, <laughs> I was telling my folks that for a while when my kids said they wanted to do something or were interested in something, I, with my personality just jumped. I was like, awesome, let's do it. And would start getting into it, buy things, start the activity, whatever. And then they would move on because they weren't really into it. And so I've learned to, I'd like to hear you request this thing a few times mm -hmm. before, before jumping on board. And I think if you do that with a seven every single time and th then they know what to expect. Mm -hmm. I think sevens when there's not a consistency around everything, whether it's discipline or, or the good stuff. Like I said, sure. this isn't a disciplinary deal when it's like, all right, if I'm interested in something and I remain interested, I know that they'll support me. Yep. Whereas if I just, sometimes they support me and sometimes they don't support me. Yep. Yeah, I, I also want to talk about one other thing. Be sure that your sense that you're offending her is the real thing and not your voice telling you that you're offending her. There's no room for you and your inner critic in parenting. So you can just tell the critic to stand down, that you're going to do the parenting your own self, your own way. And then you trust that intuitively. And the other thing is, I think we all need to step back, particularly right now, and recognize what our children are picking up uh, from the media and on television. It cannot be an easy time to be a biracial 11-year-old. And I think we fall into a lot of traps when it comes to adoption. I think sometimes our desire to have our adopted child believe that their belonging is full and complete means that we deny the reality of their life prior to being adopted, even if they were adopted as infants. I was. And my whole childhood, people told me how lucky I was to be adopted by Doc and Sue Guthrie, and I was very blessed by that. And what preceded that was the reality that my birth mother didn't want me. And you don't get to skip that, and you don't get to skip that she's biracial in a culture that is very whipped up about racial difference. And uh, it's, it's very tricky right now. So I think you might want to find a way for her to have a place that is safe for her to talk about that. I just wanted to throw that in also. 11, what a great age. Yeah. And it's a great age partly because the line of communication can be so open right now. I'd be curious how many things you and dad made up parenting me that if y'all had just asked me, I'd have been like, that's not the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot. And I think sevens are very hard to read. And the only way to know is ask. Is to ask. Mm -hmm. But then keep it short. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, bless your heart. 
having a two and a nine, both over talkers, must have been quite something for you as a child. I'm sorry. I shared a story with my curriculum group the other day. <laughs> I told them that we were in the trust tree, so I can't okay. say it on the podcast. All right. Gotcha. Next question. Hi, Suzanne and Joel. Thank you for the work that you do on your podcast. I really love to listen to it and learn more about myself and about others on our Enneagram journeys. Uh, my question is this. I am diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, and I'm wondering if that means that I'm for sure a type six or if I perhaps am a different type with generalized anxiety disorder. Could you help clarify how to know um, if you are a different type or if you truly are a type six because of the anxiety? Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you uh, for the question. Any number can have a generalized anxiety disorder. So, um, any number can have ADHD. Any number can have bipolar. All of it. So, there's no necessarily direct correlation. If you're a six, then you have some pretty good tools on board to deal with anxiety because that has come with sickness. And I think you might want to lean into that. Those tools wouldn't work necessarily as well if you're not a six. And I would encourage you to explore any other number that you think you might be by looking at motivation and not behavior and looking at motivation that doesn't involve feeling safe, that doesn't involve safety in any way. So example, if your motivation is that you want to avoid conflict and you have a lot of anxiety around that, then it could be that you're a nine with a generalized anxiety disorder. So you need to look at your motivation a lot and look at the motivation of other numbers and see where you fit there and then layer that with the diagnosis of uh, an anxiety disorder and then work from there. Six with anxiety disorder. It's like bringing sand to the beach. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Hi, Suzanne and Joel. My name is Damian Mitchell and I identify as a five on the Enneagram. First, I want to say thank you for all of the work that you are doing. My wife and I had the opportunity to participate in an Enneagram journey class facilitated by Heather Mustaine, where we got to know our numbers. We enjoyed the class so much that during the pandemic, we ended up facilitating three separate virtual Enneagram journey classes with friends and family. For this five, that was exhausting, but well worth it and incredibly valuable. I'm reaching out today because I've heard uh, you say in the past that fives have thoughts and then they have feelings about their thoughts. And if someone disagrees with their thoughts, that can then hurt their feelings. In my life, I don't identify with that. I find that I think because of the neutrality of fives, I often am not that tied to a position. So somebody disagreeing with a position doesn't bother me that much. However, when I look back on my life, I see that times that I've had very strong feelings and emotions have been when I've perceived someone to think of me as incapable or incompetent, and that causes me great stress and and anger and discomfort. Uh, I'm curious if that is the same thing as far as feelings about thoughts, or is that something different? Uh, I would love your input on that. Again, thank you so much for your work. 
it's appreciated. Thank you, Damien. That's a good, good question. Um, let's start with the anger that comes with feeling incompetent and incapable. I um, believe that frequently, I used to say always, and then some therapists said, no, not always, a lot, but not always, that anger is preceded by other emotions. So I would suggest that you back up from feeling angry when you believe that you're being seen or perceived to be incapable and incompetent and see what feelings came before the anger. Were you afraid that it's true, that you are that? Were you uh, hurt because somebody would think that of you? Were you frustrated because you didn't want to be seen that way? That'll help you with that part. In terms of having um, your feelings hurt when people disagree with what you think, I would propose, and it's a guess, that you probably have a bigger six-wing than four-wing. Fives with a four-wing tend to get their feelings hurt more if you disagree with what they think than fives with a six-wing. And the other thing I would say is that the older fives get, the more they are tied to what they think and the more of their image is tied to what they think. And as a result of that, the more likely they are to have hurt feelings if you disagree with their thinking. It seems to me like both are true. Mm -hmm. I think if we were to unpack this, that, you know, when you talk about the motivation of fives and knowledge to be, you know, self-sustaining and competent. Mm-hmm. And when you take that and apply it to whatever it is, he said, you know, when I'm deemed incompetent of being able to do something, it's because you've put a lot of thought and gathered a lot of information. And so your thoughts have these feelings now behind it. And your, their, your feelings are what is hurt there. It's not that you're not competent. Your feelings are hurt. That's right. Yeah. I would also say that I think the neutrality of fives often doesn't apply to them to themselves. Yeah, that's yeah. outward. They're n- neutral about other things, but not not about where they are in the world. You know, if 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 you manage your fear coming from the fear triad with being able to fully understand something like your need to perceive, then I would think it would be tricky for somebody to disagree with you or for somebody to find you incapable or incompetent mm-hmm. or for you to see yourself that way. In our experience, uh, we've had volunteers who are fives who get very frustrated with not being able to do something with technology. And it's just a completely different response from fives when they don't know how to do something than it is for any other number. Hi, Suzanne. I'm an eight with a capital E in every way except for one. I always hear that eights have um, tremendous physical stamina, and I do not. In fact, I'm a pretty um, low energy person, like with physical energy. I have a lot of energy in my emotions and my presence and all these other things. But physically, I am a low energy person. So anyway, I'm just curious if eights can lack physical stamina. Thank you for everything that you do. And there's a lot of energy in the question. (laughs) 
Um, you know, I think there are exceptions to every rule and every number, and it could be that you have a lot of energy and low physical energy and you're an eight. I certainly wouldn't say, oh, well, you can't be an eight if you don't have a lot of physical energy. I would encourage you to watch what drains your energy. Like, do you start off with a lot and then uh, maybe you work with somebody who kind of is a big energy drain for you? Just watch yourself and see if there are places where you lose energy that if you weren't in those situations, you'd feel a little more physically vibrant. There's so many variables around energy anyway, from environment, diet, and oh my gosh, we're in a pandemic where energy has been such a concern. Yeah, (laughs) it's like nobody has much. Where's it going and how are you getting it? Hey, Suzanne, uh, I feel like I could ask 100 questions, but I'm going to try to limit myself. So I'm a nine, and I often struggle with being excited or passionate about uh, what people want me to be passionate about. Um, That can be as simple as not reacting in a satisfactory way when my wife tries on a new outfit or when someone gives me a gift. Uh, Even when I do have an opinion, which I, I really usually don't, I don't know how to act excited about it without it seeming very fake. Uh, There are other things that have happened that I really am excited about. It just doesn't really seem like it uh, because I'm not super emotive. I don't know how much of this is my nineness, how much of it is just my need for counseling. Um, But yeah, if you could talk about that, it would be awesome. Also, part two, I wondered if you could talk about nines and change uh, because that's something I super, super hate. Um, Even good changes. I have a really hard time getting on board with Uh, it's not an objective thing. I usually can see why something needs to be changed, but I have a very strong reaction in my body uh, to changes that I don't like. So if you could talk about that, that would be awesome. Uh, Okay, that's it. You guys are the best. Um, Keep it up. Thank you. I want to talk about the second one first, and uh, that is that you don't like change. And I think... Probably the reason you don't like it is because it's an energy drain. So keep in mind that eights have the most energy, nines have the least, fives have a measured amount of energy. Change costs a lot of energy. It just does, no matter what you change. And when you don't feel like you have it to give, but you don't recognize that it's an energy problem. So the reason I teach that nines um, have less energy than other numbers is because they're boundaried internally and externally. They're trying to keep in anything that's going to cause conflict, and they're trying to keep out anything that's going to steal their peace. And I would suggest that change has the potential to do both, and both at the same time, and at least one of the two every time. So you might explore that and see if that's why you don't like change. In terms of merging with people and then not wanting to pretend you're excited when you're not excited and all of that, the example you gave is also one that could cause conflict. So if you don't respond appropriately, uh, 
appropriately in terms of the way your wife wants you to respond about a new dress she has, I think was your example, then that has the potential to cause conflict, which you don't want to have because of the reasons that I've already said. So I think I'm going to teach you by experience. I find that if I don't get the response from Joe that I want, like I'll say, does this look good? And he'll say, yeah. And then I say, does it really look good? And he'll say, yeah. And the more I ask, the least committed his answers are because he's tired of giving them because he started off with, yeah, it looks great. And so he's kind of taught me by saying, what do you want me to say? I think it looks great. It or Do those words not work? And so I think um, you need to not merge. You need to be sure that you tell the truth. You need to be true to yourself about what you're excited about and what you're not excited about. You also um, might want to take a look at whether or not you're really being present at social gatherings. Having your body in the room isn't presence. You got to like be in on conversations and listen to what other people say. And for years, I would say to Joe going home from some event, you sure didn't talk very much. Are you all right? Did you not like those people or whatever the questions are? And his answer consistently was, I thought I talked a lot. So I want you to share with your wife and carry in your pocket what your childhood messages are and your lost childhood messages that your presence matters. So you spent your whole life thinking my presence doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter what I think about the dress. It doesn't matter whether or not I want to be at this event. It doesn't matter because my presence doesn't matter. And the second thing is your unconscious childhood message is it's not okay to assert yourself. And often Social gatherings um, sort of feel like in order for you to find a way in, you would have to assert yourself, which you have grown to believe isn't okay. That That's a, a lot to deal with in terms of the questions that you're asking, and all of it needs to be explored. You know, you talked about when you get in the car after a social gathering, and dad says that he thought he talked a lot, just the different perspectives that people will say couples, but whatever have after a social gathering. I don't know if you remember our conversation with Dave Barnes mm-hmm. and I'm telling you, this Who is probably forget this our is conversation with Dave Barnes. Probably the hardest I've laughed on the podcast was him telling the story about after a party, they got in the car, he and his wife and his wife, I was like, that was interesting. And he was like, yeah, it was great. And she asked him what he thought of his like behavior. And he was like, I was on, wasn't I? I was fantastic. You know, boom, I'll just come with story, story. And it wasn't so great. And she was like, and she told her perspective, which was not that. <laughs> One of the things also that I wanted to say, if you want to try this out, I loved getting a clean slate with uh, Whitney. And early on in our dating, you know, she would say something or I, I would just be pretty blunt about stuff. If I was excited about something, I'd say it now. And any time that I wasn't excited about something, whether it was a dress 
uh, food, a movie, you know, I'd be like, I love you. And I think we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. And I don't want to move forward <laughs> with you making this dinner that I don't want to ever eat yeah. again. And yeah. so then there's a way to lovingly say, Hey, you know, we got a, a long future ahead of us. Yeah. And so I want to be honest about that dress. Exactly. And dad and I can get in the car and have earnest questions. And his question is, do you think I contributed enough? And my question is, did I talk too much? And the answer is usually no and yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I get in the car and I say, did you have a fun time? Uh-huh. Like, did, Cause that's, did you enjoy it? Whatever it was, wherever yeah. we're at. Hi, Suzanne. I'm Angela, and I'm a one. I have a question about the feelings underneath uh, anger and resentment as it compares to the other types. And uh, what got me started wondering about this is my pet peeve with the theory that everything that bothers you about someone else is really something that bothers you about you, which I just don't agree with. Um, I feel annoyed and angry with people and their behavior all the time. And it seems like the things that bug me the most are just things that I think are normal for people to be good at, um, like proper grammar etiquette or being organized. They're not things that I'm secretly disappointed that I don't have. So anyway, I realized eventually that the healthier my boundaries are between me and other people, the less angry I would get about those things. And the more I worked on that, the more I realized that what I actually feel is compassion, which was a surprise. I knew already that I get angry and annoyed by people, usually the ones who are just struggling in life, which I know sounds kind of awful, but to realize that underneath that was that I wanted to feel for them is almost uncomfortable. I thought I would find jealousy or just more self-hatred at the root of my irritation, and I just don't. And my question is, do you think that is different for every single type, or does there seem like there might be a correlation among stances or triads? I don't know why. I just thought maybe threes, fives, or eights could relate to this. Um, and that's it. I don't really know what I'm on to, but I was just curious. Thanks. Bye. You teach that ones are rarely angry about what they're angry about. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be part of the answer to this. The things that, you know, I forget what example she used there, but about, was it grammar or something like mm -hmm. that? That she and doesn't have. Order. Yeah, in order. She doesn't struggle with that. But the anger, you know, comes out in other places. So it sounds like that displaced anger that ones have is that that's it i think it, it's always important to recognize that whatever you're angry about that you're aware of it's probably not that but the second thing that i think is really important about that comes in the reality that ones want to help you do it right whatever ones get into that they really believe in then they want you to be into that too and you know ones like twos and sixes have those talking patterns and nines where they give you too many examples and then ones will pull in somebody else to agree with them. I might, if I was a one say, these are the things that you need to work on, right, Joel? You know that those are the things that work. And I'm convinced that ones are trying to help when doing something their way has proven to be helpful to them in the big world. And when offered and other people don't respond well to that, 
I think they get kind of whipped up. The other thing that I heard, and tell me if you heard this or or not, that you know she talked about being capable, and when you want to do whatever it is you are doing the right way, and the you know the correct way to do it, and the capable way of doing it, then when you see other people, no matter what it is, not doing it the right way, not doing it to their full capabilities, then you could be resentful because you don't get to, why don't I get to Mm -hmm. slack on that? Yeah. Or be incorrect or, and so then that's, I think that's why it is the resentment is the, the bugaboo. Yeah. And I think it's really important because it's not jealousy. You know, it is, it's resentful that they get to get away with bad mm -hmm. grammar, for example. The other thing I would say is I think she started by saying that um, if you're f- feeling angry, it's because of something you do. Um, I think that was the beginning. And I think the old saying about that actually is. Oh, she talked about uh, if you're having if you're struggling with something in somebody else, it's a mirror, the shadow mirror. That That's what you're upset about in yourself. Yeah, I think that's worth looking at. I think it is that. And it may not be the same, but the root of it will be the same. So it might be comparison. It might be judgment. It might be slacking. It might be whatever is underneath the behavior. I think getting really whipped up about somebody else is always a mirror that you need to pay attention to about something in you. And I haven't thought about this in a long time. Uh, and I haven't heard you say it in a long time. I don't remember the last time I listened all the way through for like I know your number. But you used to teach about ones that they're the people that they're not upset if they get a speeding ticket for going five over as long as everyone gets a speeding ticket for going five over. And I think that's what she's describing here. And I did, I never understood that until now and hearing her talk about this. And I think that's it. Looking for an even playing field, no matter whether it's grammar, work, this, Neatness, that. Orderliness. Yeah. All of it. Don't you think if you were a one, you would be jealous of people who don't have an inner critic? But they're not. They're resentful. Yep. It's not, it's not envious. It's not, um, it's, this isn't just right. That's what it is. Yeah. It's a justice thing in that eight, nine, one triad. Yeah. Hi, Suzanne. My name is Paige and I'm an Enneagram nine. And I would say that the Enneagram has been very transformational for me so far. And I just listened to your podcast with Russ Hudson, and I would really like to go deeper and use the Enneagram for more spiritual work. And I was wondering if you could help me with that, because I don't really know how to do that. Thanks. I really appreciate your teaching, and I love your podcast. Hi, Paige. I would encourage you to read Richard Rohr. The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective. I would encourage you to read um, Hurley and Donson, maybe My Best Self, or one of the other titles from them. And 
Russ Hudson's work is available on lots of platforms. Like if you Google his name, there are a lot of places where you can hear him speak. And he is so gifted when he talks about that. And to hear him talk about the spirituality of the Enneagram is, a, for me, a completely different experience than reading about it. He's a great teacher for that. And there are a lot of places where you can find him speaking. I unfortunately don't follow the LTM guidelines of you have to have a spiritual director and a therapist. You know, I kind of look to uh, you and the Reverend for some spiritual direction. But would that be someone who could be very helpful in this area, having a spirit combining what she's learning about the Enneagram with guidance from a spiritual director don't they give you work on, you know, listening to Andrew talk, mm-hmm. how he and his spiritual director are coming up with spiritual practices that work best for him in his personality and finding the ones that don't work well for him because of his vocation and his personality. Yeah, I think that'd be great. And I would also um, encourage you to wait for your number to come, but to read the other books in the 40-day series that IVP is publishing right now, I edited them, and they are 40 days of being a two, and then 40 days of being a three. Those two are already available. If you did those things for 40 days and not read through them quickly, you can read Sean Palmer and Hunter Mobley now as a three and a two. You would be surprised at how much listening to their spiritual journey teaches you about your own and about what things work for them that don't work for you and things that you've never thought of before. So one really good practice for every number is journaling, and there are some numbers that hate it. And one of the things that Hunter offers is a journaling prompt that requires that you just write two or three sentences every day. And you might want to come up with your own prompt and then journal two or three sentences every day. And that'll lead you to a place where you can have a really good conversation with a potential spiritual director to see if they would be the right fit for you. One of the things that's so great about living in this time in history is how easily accessible resources are for whatever it is that you are interested in. You know, there's definitely two sides to that. One of the things I love to do on Instagram is uh, for golf, the different golf tips that, and there's some really awful tips that I don't want to follow and uh, that don't work for my swing. And then I pick up some really great stuff as well, just from these little things on Instagram. And that's another thing, you know, when you become interested in something. So if it's the Enneagram and, spirituality and spiritual practices is just Google it, (laughs) you know, go find different uh, social media accounts that you can trust. You know, there's, um, I forget, 1128 is a great place, by the way, to look for a spiritual director or to ask questions about what spiritual direction is. But then also other just accounts that talk about prayer beads that talk about, uh, and this is where someone else could list off 50 different spiritual practices But you'll find that and then keep what in your toolbox, what works for you and uh, the ones that don't let those go. 
careful with what you let go because you need at least, you might only want one spiritual practice. If you only want one at a time, then because you're a nine, you need a spiritual practice that brings up doing. Because what you're trying to achieve with a spiritual practice is balance. If you do more than one spiritual practice, then you get to do a doing repressed spiritual practice too. Also, I don't know where you live, but I'll tell you, no matter where you live, if you call, if it's a city of any size, if you call a Catholic church there or a Catholic convent, they have spiritual directors for non-Catholics and they have a resource for you. Hi, my name is Ashley Wellborn. I am in Enneagram 7 and I'm married to an Enneagram 8. So this is a crazy, energetic and extremely aggressive household, which is awesome. And I was wondering if Suzanne might shed some wisdom on dealing with conflict with my Enneagram 8 husband. I hear from a lot of the Enneagram teachers from Beatrice Chestnut and um, from you, Suzanne, and from a lot of other people who talk about relationships that Enneagram 8s really need you to be upfront and authentic, uh, authentic and truthful when you deal with conflict with them. Um, but I also, because I've been married to him for 17 years, I can also sense a fragility in him and a vulnerability sometimes on things that I'm trying to bring to his attention and holding those two things together is just seems really difficult sometimes to try and be careful with his vulnerability while also being matching his aggression or bringing authenticity to him that I know that he appreciates. So if you could help me with this Enneagram godmother, I would really appreciate it. Um, it just is a really difficult thing to hold in tension. And I think your wisdom would be really useful here. Thanks a lot. Thanks for everything you guys do. You guys are literally changing my life and I really appreciate it. First of all, Joel, will you talk about the thing you and Whitney did for a while, the Monday night meeting or the, I think they need to start there. With a, a check-in? Yeah. We, yeah, we did that for a while and we've just amended it some. Uh, I'm working on listening to her at the end of the day and uh, just communicating more. You know, one of the things that you talk about sevens and I, you said this recently and I found it to be really true. Uh, and we talked about it some last night actually is uh, just living two parallel lives, the seven and their partner. And that can be good and bad. And too much of it is bad, I think. So we, so last night we kind of talked about some, how are the kids, our kids doing? How's the other person doing? She brought up something in our relationship. She's like, are you okay that this is where we're at around this? And I was like, oh, oh yeah, you got the right husband to be okay with that. And, you know, and we had talked about those things. One of the things that I heard Ashley say as a fellow seven, you know, she talks about meeting the, her husband's aggression, but then at other times not, you know, he's not being aggressive. So, and that inconsistency has got to be so hard when, especially if, you know, for me around anything, it's hard to put the brakes on something. You know, when I uh, was a bartender and I was like, thought I was going to be able to get out of there and, you know, be cut from a shift or get out of a shift, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, Hey, actually we need to say, 
that was, you know, the change in the wind is so hard for sevens to deal with or for this seven. Do you think that's true for all sevens dealing with the change in the wind? I do. I think it's dealing with uh, unmet expectations. So when your expectation is that you've got to be geared up for this conflict and you are geared up and then that's not what's required, then it's like, yeah, what do you want from me? Now what do I do? Yeah. Right. Is there, we kind of talked about this during the pandemic for couples that are three, sixes and nines and the, just having some sort of physical uh, totem to communicate where you're at on that triangle of making the move in stress, making the move in security and that uh, for an eight to go to either two or five is such a big, a big energy move. If you catch an eight and two, with a lot, and you're coming with a lot of aggression. It oh, just man. doesn't work. And doesn't that sound like that's what what's happening sometimes? I do her? think that may be happening sometimes, and I also think that sometimes we get in patterns, and criticism becomes part of the pattern, or reminders about a former criticism become part of the pattern. And I also think that during this pandemic, we're trying to control what we can control. And it's never good when that's the other person. That's why I think a check-in would be good for them. I think a weekly check-in would be great. You could start twice a week if you want to. It has to have a lot of boundaries. And I also think it might be good to read uh, Thich Nhat Hanh on anger, anything he's written on anger. He has a great perspective about when to deal with things and for how long. And nobody likes criticism, and it's harder to hear in a time when you're not living your normal life and getting strokes. I'm really mindful that because I don't get to teach now publicly, criticism, you know, constructive criticism feels much bigger to me than it would if I was getting strokes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us are not doing the things that fed us. And so it feels like piling on kind of. Something I think that we overlooked also, there's seven and an eight. And she talked about all the energy with all the going and going. Think of that pace. So the check-in might just need to be 10 minutes at dinner. Or, I mean, just just something to stop and slow down for a second. Because things just build when you go and go and go. then And you don't want to stop to take time to address something. Then those things build up. Then the anger becomes something about a lot of things and anger becomes hurt about a lot of things just because we haven't slowed down even just for a short time in a day. Yeah. You know, another good practice is to, along with a check-in or a certain time, you can only talk about things like this in certain places, not in our bedroom, not at, Mm -hmm. not at the table, not in our prayer space and not in the car. So it's like, do I want to talk about it that bad or is it really kind of okay? (laughs) Like, do I want to do it? Do I want to talk about this at check-in or do these things matter more? And do I want to do it in the space where I have to be? Because like we're already in bed. All right. One more. (laughs) One more thing. It sort of sounds like we've tried everything between the two of us. (laughs) Whitney 
this was early on in our marriage. We're still early in our marriage, but earlier on, she heard this at one of the workshops, maybe the relationships workshop, and typed it out and put it on a refrigerator. And I think we did it once just because I was like, this, I, I cannot do this. But, oh, my God, they're probably better human beings that can do it. So I'm going to assume that. And that is the whole I, the idea of putting two chairs together <laughs> and then your your knee to knee yep. and holding hands, yep. two hand, both holding hands, yep. and then tr- have the fight that way and have the conflict that way, have the tension in that space. It is ridiculously hard to do. Like, one, oh, my gosh. <laughs> All I want to do is not do that. Yeah, yeah, that was Dad's idea, <laughs> and it works perfectly for him. It, yeah, it, that'll diffuse everything. Yeah, so that's if you really if you need to pull out the big guns, that yeah. that's a big gun. And I think we probably have over talked to a wider range of problem than Ashley has. Yeah, yeah, trying to help everybody. So Ashley, I would just close by saying this: we all need to be tender with one another until whatever is going to be a new normal comes whenever that is going to be. And I have thought a lot about what word to use. And I decided on we need to be tender because that's more than being patient. It's more than being kind. It's a whole different thing. So just think about tenderness and, you know, we all need to keep busy Our projects cannot be the people that we love. Hello, my name is Sabrina. I'm 20 years old and currently a college student. I identify as an Enneagram 6. So I've been studying the Enneagram for a few years now and become very conscious of my relationship with authority, um, what types of people I find safety with and the people I'm more wary of. But um, I've been going through a lot of overturn in my spiritual beliefs and relationship with the church. Um, I used to be going to an evangelical church, but um, my my gut reaction is to find someone to kind of direct me through the uncertainties and the different changes that are going on in my life. Um, but do you have any advice for the six who wants? a new authority figure to define things and, um, but is also wanting to gain independence from that. Cause I feel that struggle of really wanting someone to be like, no, this is, this is right. And this is wrong. And this is where you go. And this is where you don't go. Um, but I'm also really wanting to, um, find an independence in myself to be able to be comfortable with, uh, with the journey of, of mystery and, um, being able to define it for myself. Sabrina, I'm so happy for you that you're asking that question at 20 because it will make the rest of your life so much better for you as a woman and as a six, the gift of a good spiritual director is that they walk beside you and ask questions that help you find the answers that are inside you. Anytime somebody talks to Joe about what they should believe, 
his response is you have to trust your own experience of God and you have to trust your own experience of your life. And you can't let somebody else's experience define for you the parameters where the answers that you're looking for fit. But you can find a good spiritual director who will walk with you and who will lead you in a way that you can get the needs met that you shared with us today. 1128 Ministries is a recommendation that we have for a way that you can find a good spiritual director. And um, there are a lot of spiritual directors around. My one caveat is that you're young and you're vulnerable or you wouldn't be asking. The deal has to be that you meet with a spiritual director one time and you the spiritual director should say, we'll try this out. And if it works for both of us, great. And if it doesn't work for either one of us, there's no hard feelings. If the spiritual director doesn't say that, you say it. And don't stay with a spiritual director that isn't the right one for you. And you'll know. After two sessions, you'll know if that's the right one. I would add, just so you have some context, I am a terrible spiritual director because I'm not patient enough to let people find their own answers while I walk with them. I just get too helpful. We, we talked earlier in the episode, but ones, twos, and sixes, impatient with the present moment. <laughs> That's right. So don't look for personality. Look for somebody who's trained and who has some experience. And, um, yeah, I, I think you're going to do great. And I'm glad for the question and I'm glad for what you're doing. And I, one more thing, which Joel talks about with more brevity than I do. So I'll ask him to do it is we have a practice that we think is really good for sixes and discovering what they believe. And it has to do with six weeks of butcher paper. I love that you still call it butcher paper. Like anyone is using butcher paper. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> no. Butchers are using butcher paper. Oh. <laughs> uh, so Just the, for the record, when I did it, I went to Central Market and got butcher, and got paper. butcher paper. Well, you go to Office Depot get and some get a nice, flip chart. Got yeah, it. post-it note, yeah. huge yeah. one. It's yeah. great. But what it is, it's a great practice, and I think we'll try to see if we can do a virtual group uh, starting January first to do for the first eight weeks of the new year uh, doing this practice. So look for that link. You know, we've called it Three Sheets of Beliefs is basically the title, an easy title. And it's day one, you get your your butcher paper and you write at the top, uh, beliefs from my childhood. And just for two weeks, and you, mom suggests that you put it somewhere big that you see it every day. Don't put it in your closet or the bathroom, but put it in a hallway or in the front room or whatever. And you write down all of the beliefs that you inherited as a child. And you do that for two weeks. Then uh, after two weeks, you get a second uh, post-it note or butcher paper and put it next to it. And it's beliefs uh, that my community holds right now. And so that's the beliefs of your family, of your church, of your, you know, all the different communities and circles and groups that you're a part of uh, today. You do that for two weeks. You write down all those beliefs. And then the third is to put next to those two, what do I believe? 
And then you do that for two weeks. And then what that does is it walks you back, especially my folks recommend that mostly. I mean, it's great for everyone just because it, it makes you think and it brings up emotions. It's, you know, we talk about prayer beads using all three of thinking, feeling, and doing. This practice is the exact same. Uh, it makes you think, it makes you feel, and you have to do it. So uh, then at the end of it, you know, you really just have a better understanding of who you are and what you believe instead of being blindsided by something, which it sounds like maybe that's happened in the uh, near past. The last thing I would say, Sabrina, is trust yourself. Other people trust you. You trust you too. And that's it. And the reverend's here. Come on in. We are going to wrap it up. Thank you all for your questions as always. And uh, we'll do more Q&A podcasts. We, they're, man, they're, they're good days when we record the Q&A. I love when we do Q&A. I miss it from teaching big groups. Let's do another one soon. Okay.